0: Morning Mercy Hill, trust you guys have had a good Independence Day weekend, enjoy yeah, enjoy the thousand dollars worth of fireworks your neighbors bought, a few random gunshots if you live in the city limits, yeah, welcome to the 4th of July in Memphis. We're in a series entitled Summer of Grace, and today's message has a rather distinct title to it. Grace for Christians. It's two words that seem as if they would naturally go together, but we oftentimes don't put those two words together. Grace for Christians. When I thought about this series, I instantly thought about this text, and I knew that I wanted to teach this text, because it's a text that always comes to my mind when I think of grace. So, grace is the free, unmerited favor of God, working powerfully on the mind and heart to change lives. It's free and unmerited, meaning there's absolutely nothing we can do to deserve God's forgiveness. It's given to us freely because of Jesus' perfect life and death in our place. But all too often, Christians think of grace as something mainly for those who are outside the church, rather than thinking of grace being something that's also for those of us who are inside the church, particularly in the religious South. Many of us have grown up in this kind of religious culture that puts an emphasis on what you do versus who you are in Jesus. And so we end up with a gospel that helps us come to Jesus. But after we meet Jesus, we feel like it's kind of up to us To grow into Him is up to what we can accomplish. And the problem with that is it will never happen without grace. We need grace to grow deeper in relationship with God. To grow in our sanctification. To grow in holiness. But here's one of the things that's tough. We need grace because change is so much harder and so much slower and so much more difficult than any of us ever thought possible. I love the way that Pete Cesaro puts it. He says, you may have Jesus in your heart, but you've got your grandfather in your bones. And what he means by that is there are generations of patterns, of ways of doing life, some of those which involve a great deal of sin and idolatry that have been passed along to us that we see as just how life is done and it takes a long time to break those patterns even some of the things within our own personalities as we get older we come to realize that within us we were just going along in order to get along in the families in which we were born we don't get to choose our families but we look back even on some of the things within our personalities Here's what's most difficult. Even some of the things that have been most praised within you by others. That as we grow older, we come to see these aren't healthy patterns. There's things even about who I am that isn't pleasing God. There's things that are unhealthy that need to change. And that can be very frustrating and very disheartening to continue to struggle and it's why we need grace. It's why even Christians continually need grace. Today we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. And I love what it reveals because it, re- it reveals, it gives us this real pearl of a story within the Apostle Peter. Because Peter is, all the things that Peter is, I mean, he is the amazing church planter, the amazing uh, megachurch pastor, For crying out loud, he started a church of 3,000 in one day. I mean, this guy's blowing and going. He's got it together. I mean, he's Peter, for crying out loud. But in this moment, in Peter's story, we see his vulnerability, and we see his sinfulness. And we see how much grace is needed, not just for the religious, And not just for the irreligious, but grace is a whole other thing. And it's needed for Christians because there are actually times, get this, Christian, in your own life where you don't believe the gospel. And we're going to see that in Peter's life today. There was a moment where Peter didn't believe the gospel. I'm not talking about the historical gospel But I'm meaning that Peter didn't appropriate the gospel to his own life. And so we see that the gospel is needed to to save us, but the gospel is needed just as much for us to live in Jesus and to grow in Jesus. So as we look at this story, my hope today is that you will see some handles, that you'll see And come to understand better what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. What we have described oftentimes as gospel fluency. And that you'll better understand how you can grow in the grace of Jesus. And how you can help others to grow in the grace of Jesus. Because the big idea for today is this. The gospel teaches us how to really live. Not simply how to do right or wrong. The gospel teaches us how to really live, not simply how to do right or wrong. So let's jump into this story in Galatians chapter 2. I want to read beginning in verse 11 through verse 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul talking about Peter. He's calling him um, by his name, which means the rock. But when the rock Came to Antioch, not to be confused with any other rocks. This is not Duane, this is Peter. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, now, James, keep in mind, he was the, the lead pastor of the hub of the Christian church there in Jerusalem, so James is kind of a big deal. if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So the context of this passage, in order to understand what's going on here, you need a bigger context for Galatians. And Galatians is such a, an amazing book. As you, it's all about the gospel. And, and Paul is defending the gospel throughout the book of Galatians. And he's doing that. There's this set of Judaizers or the circumcision party. And they're in essence, they have shown up. They're trying to, after Paul has established the church of Galatia, they've shown up and said, hey, what you're doing is good, but let's make everybody happy. Okay? So there's people who are unhappy because Paul has come in and said, that the church is all about following jesus well that 's true; it is about following Jesus, but we want to make the Jews happy as well. We want the political leaders to be happy, we want the cultural leaders to be happy. Does this sound familiar? We want everyone to be happy, and so we can we can concoct, if you will, a gospel in which political leaders are happy and cultural leaders are happy and the church leaders are happy. And all you have to do is take everything that Jesus has given us and say, yeah, we're good with Jesus plus something else. And there's something else with circumcision and there's something else was the Mosaic Law. And so they're saying, in essence, like, it's Jesus plus something. Okay? So that's what, that's what they're representing here. Now, th- there's a problem with that, there would have been a problem for us a few days ago if this would have gone uninterrupted. Like, your, your menu on the 4th of July would have been very limited, folks. Like, I'm not even sure that Memphis would exist. Like, no claim to fame, no barbecue. There's a lot at stake here, but there's more at stake than barbecue and being able to eat pork Because in essence, what Paul comes in and and defines as the gospel, he says, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Remember that. When you hear political leaders talk, and when you hear cultural leaders speak, and when you hear pastors speak, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. What can you add to a vacuum and it remain a vacuum? Nothing. In the same way, you can add nothing to the gospel, because if you do, if you add anything to the gospel, it becomes nothing because the gospel is all by grace alone. And so Paul is, Paul is sharing this. And, and Paul says, hey, here's the best way for me to defend the gospel. Here's the best way for me to defend the gospel of grace. Let me just tell my story. Because Paul, sto- Paul was, he says, I'm the foremost of sinners. And like We don't understand what that means. Paul was murdering people. Paul was there and in charge when one of the first deacons was put to death by stoning. Paul held the coats as the men stoned Stephen. Like Paul is saying if there is ever a testimony that says the gospel is by grace alone, it's my story. Because God came and he chose me and there was nothing within me that was deserving. And so Paul is making this case. And then as he makes this case, he says that, Something weird happened. He starts telling about in Antioch when Peter shows up that for you to understand the significance of this story, you got to know a little bit about Peter's story. Some of you remember that story back in Acts chapter 10 when God does this big work of letting Peter know that the gospel is not just going to be for the Jews, but it's going to be for the Gentiles as well. And Peter is up on a rooftop. He's praying and fasting. And and God gives him this vision, this sheet that's let down from heaven. There's all these unclean animals that are on it. And God says, go and eat. And Peter says, I could never do that. It's unclean. We've been practicing this Mosaic law for a couple thousand years. And it happens three different times. And God says, go and eat. And God says, don't call unclean what I've made clean. And he's he's showing Peter this vision. At the same time, Cornelius receives the vision, this Gentile He's a military leader in the Italian cohort. And this military leader sends his servant to Peter and says, come and share the gospel with us. And Peter starts making a connection. And Peter realizes, I think that sheet that God was letting down from heaven and all about what's clean and what's unclean, I think there's a bigger vision behind that. Yeah, we can eat pork now. We can enjoy barbecue. But I think God is saying that the Gentiles, that they're clean. That I'm going to take the gospel, not just to the Jews, but I'm also going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So he goes to Cornelius' house and he shares the gospel. And the Holy Spirit comes and all of Cornelius' family receives the gospel. It's this amazing moment in which Peter realizes this is so much bigger than what we had believed. This is going to go to the ends of the earth. So kind of an important moment and an important guy within this story. Now, what's the problem that takes place? All that build up to let you know that Paul says, hey, when Peter showed up, something happened. Something happened that caused Peter to fall into sin. And and I want to spend our time today unpacking maybe a little bit of what what was behind Peter's sin, but even more so, how did Paul respond to Peter? Because the way in which Paul responds to Peter sets up really well for us how we can preach the gospel, learn to preach the gospel to ourselves, and then how we can also learn to preach the gospel to others. Because the gospel is not just simply about right or wrong, the gospel is about how to truly live. So Paul says that this party from Jerusalem, some of James' guys show up. And when they show up, these other Christian Jewish brothers, that Peter suddenly pulls back. And he stops having table fellowship with these other Jews. Now, we think, okay, so he's not eating with some folks. Like, how significant is that? It was very significant in this day and time. Because in this particular day, to have table fellowship with someone meant that you received them, that you them that you agreed with them. It's why the Pharisees would always criticize Jesus so much when someone who was unclean would be allowed to come to the table. They would say, if you knew who you were eating with, you wouldn't be eating with them because there was a fear that they would become unclean. Well, Peter pulls back from the table fellowship. He's been hanging out with all these Gentiles and all of a sudden Barnabas and other leaders begin to follow him. And Paul says, That this is not okay. It's so much deeper. It's not just being rude or unfriendly or ill-mannered. In verse 14, Paul says, he uses this word orthopedosin in the Greek. It's like where we get our word orthodontist from. What's ortho mean? To make straight. And Paul's saying, you're not conducting your life in line with the truth of the gospel. is what he tells Peter. Now, I want us to look really quickly at how Paul handles all of this. Look with me, um, and we're going to see first what Peter's sin really was. What was Peter's sin? And it was not believing the gospel. When you stop and think, like, what? You're saying Peter didn't believe the gospel. How could he not believe the gospel? This is the guy who started the church at Pentecost. This is the guy who was in Jesus' inner circle. Like, how could he not believe the gospel well my guess is maybe he was fearful that this would hurt his call to take the gospel to the Jews I don't really know but within this I want to unpack really quickly an important principle for each of us because I think that most of us when we see sin in our life So we got Peter, he's not acting like he should have acted. He's not in community with those he should have been in community with. He's bringing disunity to the church. I think for most of us, we would call in the church leaders. And we'd say, hey, Paul, you need to have this conversation with Peter. You need to tell him how he's bringing disunity. You need to tell him to stop it. You need to show him what he's doing. You need to remind him of the gospel, like build this big message up, win win the battle, you know, and tell him to stop it. Like, that's usually what we do with people who are sinning. You need to stop doing that. Oh, and by the way, in order to stop doing that, maybe you need to start doing these things. But whenever we just simply tell people to stop it, well, one, it rarely works. Because they kind of already know that. And two, it usually is just legalism. It's usually just something they should or ought to do. But they need, they need more power. They need some fuel. They need to know, like, how do I stop it? And, and they need to look deeper at their own sin. And we see here Peter's sin. So I want to impa- unpack for you what's been really helpful. And I've learned this through our Sama community of churches. And um, it's called Fruit to Root. And so really it's the idea of when we see sin... How do we look at not just the fruit of the sin, but how do we look at the root of the sin? Or what I like to call the sin beneath the sin. So whenever you look and you say, there's something I need to stop. And by the way, that's that's not completely wrong. Like alcoholics need to stop drinking. And those who are jealous, they need to stop being jealous. So that's partially right. But just saying stop it never gets us to where we want to get. And so whenever you see a sin in your life that you need to stop, it's always helpful to ask, what's the sin beneath the sin? So the question is like, what's motivating this? And so the first step uh, in this fruit to root process is see and own your sin. See and own your sin. And we see that Peter That Paul helps Peter to do that. Look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So, Paul is saying that Peter's sin in verse 12 was fear of man. He feared man more than he feared God. And so, Fearing man, he pulled back from community. And look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. So his sin, like the fruit of his sin, was that he was fearful of man and it resulted in in hypocrisy. But this was just a fruit of a greater sin in his life. So secondly, it's important that we didn't see the sin beneath the sin. Or the, the root sin. Now look in verse 14 and Paul points that out. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. So he addresses Peter in front of everyone, which, by the way, is, is rarely um, something that would be recommended. But Peter's conduct had affected the whole body, and so it needed to be, in a sense, reprimanded in front of the whole body in order to be corrected. But we see the sin beneath the sin, this root sin in verse 14. And Paul, in essence, is saying, Peter, you're not believing the gospel. There's idolatry in your life. There's an idol that's fueling this fear of man and and that's fueling and causing hypocrisy. Peter failed to believe that God is glorious. And so he began to fear others. Stopping is not enough. One of the things that has been really helpful for me in whether it's in counseling or in my own coffee group or missional community or just even just within my own life is coming to understand that when you think of sin and when you think of idolatry, um, Satan is creative, but he's not a creator, And that's really important to remember. And so when you think of sin, sin is parasitic, meaning it always needs a host. It needs something to attach itself to. And you can begin to see how Satan is creatively attaching himself to good things that God has created in ways... And pay particular attention to these two things. These are the two ditches that we get in when it comes to sin. Areas in our life where things are exaggerated. So listen for things that are exaggerated in someone's life. Um, no, I don't, I don't have a problem at work. My, my, my work is not part of the problem at home. My work does not affect my marriage. I have to work 80 hours a week. Everybody in my industry works 80 hours a week. It's just what they do. But it has nothing to do with my marriage. It's a lot of exaggeration there. Really? Does does everybody in your industry work 80 hours a week? Like, do you think you can sustain the rest of your life working 80 hours a week? Like, that's exaggerated. Listen for that. What could be going on there? Someone's a workaholic. They're finding that they're putting their significance in what they do rather than what Christ has done. Or don't just listen for what's exaggerated. Even sometimes more importantly, look for, listen for what's diminished. So when someone says, I didn't really need it. But I really wanted it and it's no big deal. I can pay it off next year. I just really wanted it. And you look back and you see this pattern in their life where they're constantly putting things on credit that they don't need, unable to pay them off, and they're in all kinds of debt. And they're saying, it's no big deal. What are they doing? They're diminishing the fact that they are envious, that they are greedy, that there are things that they want, and they're trying to let themselves off the hook. It's no big deal. It's just the American way of life. Look for things that are exaggerated within your life. Look for things that are diminished. Those are two sides of the road that are two, two, the two ditches that we can find ourselves in. Because what's in the middle of the road? God, God's good gifts. And all sin is parasitic. Meaning that it's got to attach itself to something good. Satan isn't A creator but he is very creative and so he takes God's good gifts and he exaggerates them or he diminishes them and that's a way that we can really begin to see what's the sin beneath the sin like what's the root of this and this is just me wondering out loud this is not it all in the scriptures but I wonder why Peter struggled with the fear of man like I love that we have this passage in the scriptures Because we think of Peter, and like he, yeah, the whole walking on water incident, and I know he had a little struggle there, like needed a lifeguard for a moment. But like we're still, we're like, I'm not even sure. I would have got out of the boat. So like we're going to give him a hand, and all that was pre-cross, you know. This is after the resurrection. This is after Peter has done great things. I wonder what was going on. Here's what I'm guessing. I'm guessing there were some things in Peter's heart and in Peter's life that we don't see the gospel writers tell us a lot about that that there were some things that he had a hard time putting to death. I mean, the dude was type A. And he was very gifted. He was a very gifted communicator. And he got pulled into Jesus' circle. Remember? And it wasn't James and John and Peter, was it? It was Peter, James, and John. You think he knew that? I think he did. I think Peter was well aware whose name was at the top of that list. Peter, he was somebody. I mean, he was a star of the show. The first half of Acts. Who's it all about? It's all about Peter. Jesus inner circle. And and here's one of the things that's hard for us to reconcile the more influence, the more power, the more authority, the more resources, the more finances that we acquire, the harder it is to be generous and submit to Jesus. Because when you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. When you've got something, you've got something to lose. And it's why oftentimes, when it seems like those who don't have much money give the most, You go raising funds, oftentimes it's not those who are wealthy in the upper class bracket who will give you money. Who you look at and you say, you could definitely afford to give me money and not even miss it. No, it's those who are in the middle class bracket or even lower income who are so generous. How are they so generous? They don't have anything to lose. But when we have something to lose, and Peter has something to lose here. I mean, he's got the church on his shoulders. And all of a sudden, these guys from James Church shows up, and he's like, "Mm, I don't know. And he becomes fearful of men. The third thing that we have to do is, not only do we have to see and own our own sin, then we begin to look for the sin that's beneath the sin, not just the fruit of the sin, but what's the root that's motivating that. But thirdly, we have to expose the idols of our heart. And we have to remind ourselves that idols, they're always tempting in the moment. Um, John Owen would always talk about, it's like fishing, you know, it's, it's, it's the bait. Satan always baits the hook and he baits the hook with something that's very tempting. You know, the bass of the brim thought, man, that cricket looks amazing. And when, he clamp- and when the bass of the brim clamps down on the hook, On the cricket, what happens? Well, there's a hook inside and then they're hooked and they can't get away. And John Owen said, that's what Satan does to us. He baits the hook with the idol. And when we clamp down on it, all of a sudden the idol is so much weaker than we ever thought it would be. But it's got us hooked and it's so much harder to escape than we ever thought possible. Idols, they never pay out what they promise. They always hurt others and they always hurt us. But the gospel, here's, here's what I want us to, he's like, you're getting like way deep into this passage. Like you are showing us all this stuff about preaching the gospel to ourselves. Can't the gospel just be, I mean, didn't Paul go to the Corinthians and say, I didn't preach you anything but the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Can't we just talk about the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Can't we just keep this kind of like a blue-collar thing? Like, why do we gotta get so intricate and detailed and talking about gospel fluency and preaching the gospel to ourselves? here's why because the gospel has hope to really change our lives for both eternity and for even now and a lot of Christians have lost sight of that a lot of Christians think that the gospel is merely about right and wrong and that we've landed that if we land on the right side of the cross then we're just waiting for this eternal home but Paul is showing us that the gospel doesn't just change like our external lives and what's right and wrong. The gospel even change our internal motivations. The gospel can change our attitudes and what we truly believe will save us. So Paul didn't say stop. But look at verses 15 and 16 at what he does say. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. He's preaching the gospel to Paul, and he's reminding Paul what Paul needs to be reminded of, which is Paul, you're not saved, or Peter, you're not saved by your works. You're not saved by what you can produce. You're saved because you're justified. You've been made right. God's righteousness has been given to you. And God looks at at you just as he looked at at Jesus because Jesus has died in your place. And so Peter is not about what you can do. You don't have to worry about the fear of man. Paul shows up, and instead of telling Peter to stop it, he points out Peter's sin. He says it's fear, it's hypocrisy, and it's even deeper. You're not believing the gospel. And then, what's the cure? He preaches the gospel to Peter. And this is where it gets a little weird. Because if any of us would look at the Scriptures and say, surely this guy knows the gospel. I mean, he preached it so powerfully, 3,000 people came to know Jesus Like, this seems a little repetitive, but we need to be reminded of the gospel on a daily basis. And one of the ways that we, I believe, can best do that is through rehearsing the four G's. Some of you know these, and some of you have probably never seen them before. The four G's are an amazing way to remind ourselves of the gospel. They simply say, God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. And Peter had forgotten that God is glorious. And so, Peter was in the midst of fearing others. Now, there's a caveat that goes along with this list. I I think this list is very helpful. First time I was exposed to it through Tim Chester's, one of his books, I thought this is amazing. However... This is not a formula. This is not a list in which somebody says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm really afraid. And so you say, oh, you don't have to be afraid. Uh, you know, God is glorious, so you don't have to fear others. And then begin to tell them why they don't have to fear others. This is not a formula. I love what, um, this is not a list of do's and don'ts. And, and I've, I've seen this, this list misused oftentimes. Uh, Whether it's in a missional community or a coffee group where somebody will just kind of bring it up. Like, well, you know that that that's so-and-so. Almost like it's, well, you know, just take, you know, four ibuprofen. It's 800 milligrams. as an anti-inflammatory. Just why haven't you done it? It's not that simple. I love what David Benner says. Um, He says that the spiritual journey is not simply doing what Jesus would do. I mean, I, I love what would Jesus do. That whole bracelet thing from like decades ago. It was... It was a a decent start. But he says the spiritual journey is not simply doing what Jesus would do, but actualizing the Christ who is in us, taking on the mind and heart of Christ as we come to recognize Christ as the deepest truth of our being. As we come to recognize Jesus as the deepest truth of our being. Do you understand that when you do the hard work of going fruit to root, seeing the sin beneath the sin, finding your sin and owning it and and then really looking and saying, hey, what's the idol here? And identifying that idol and and in a real sorrowful way, moving through repentance that a part of repentance, like if you move through repentance, it always ends in joy, Joy is always on the other side of repentance. Like it's the flip side of the coin. Because what we're saying is that I'm recognizing where the idol that looks so good. I'm recognizing the hook that's in it. And I'm moving away from it. And I'm recognizing what has been exaggerated or diminished. God's gift. And I'm coming back to the original gift that God has given me. And I'm seeing that what God gave me was actually better. And there's joy in that. There's joy in it. God is good. He's great. He's glorious. And He's gracious. Paul ends this section and he makes it so applicable. In verses 17 through 18. It's kind of confusing as you first read it, but he's saying in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul was essentially, he's being criticized. He was being criticized because they were saying, hey, if you're just saying that grace is free, if, there's, like, if that's all there is, it's just grace alone, Then what is there to keep people from sinning? Like if you're telling people that it's grace alone and faith alone and it's just free, then people are gonna say, hey, I can just go off and sin. And he's saying, What Christ has built up, people are tearing it back down. He, and Paul is saying, No, that's not grace at all. If someone says, Grace gives me permission to sin, and that's the way and that's the pattern in which they live their life, then they then they most likely don't know Christ. But he ends in verses 19 through 21 and he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. And in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says that our hope and our only hope, is gospel living. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Do you understand that the gospel has implications for your past, your present, and your future? Did the gospel says that your sins are forgiven? Which ones? Well, the ones I've already committed. How about the ones for today? Yep. How about the ones I'll commit in the future? Absolutely. The gospel tells us that we have forgiveness. The gospel says that we have eternal security both now and forever. The gospel says that we have relationship with God that's been restored and cannot be taken away. The gospel says that we have power for living through the gospel. And it it tells us the deepest truths that we know for every aspect of our life. For work, For family, for recreation, for relationships, for our sex life, for everything you can imagine. The gospel directs us. And Paul says in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I used to think that those verses meant that in areas of sin where I'm failing, that I need to crucify these areas. Meaning that I need to try harder. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. Instead, Paul is rehearsing the gospel here. Crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. This life I now live by faith. So he's saying that a death has taken place. And the question is, what has died? Like, has all of me died? What has died? And what has died is the old part of me or the old man. Look back at the four G's. What has died? Looking that I've looked elsewhere, that I've had to be in control, that I feared others, that I always tried to prove myself. Those are the things that Christ is putting to death in each of us. But we have this old man that rears his ugly head, this old part of who we were. It's not who we are, but it's who we were. Peter read about it in Ephesians earlier. And when that old man rears his ugly head, just like it did in Peter's life, that old part of Peter that said, Hey, There's something about me that really wants to impress others. We remind ourselves of the grace of Jesus, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And I allow the grace of Jesus to motivate me appropriately instead of the old man. The old man says, is all the things in which I'm believing that my value comes from what I have or what others think of me or what I do But instead, in Jesus, my motivation comes from my gratitude for Him. And it causes me to love Him and obey Him in sacrifice. Now, one word. As you think about this whole process of fruit to root, and as you think about preaching the gospel to yourself, let me just remind you that we need to do that on a daily basis. You know, that all of life would be that of repentance. But this is what Martin Luther said. Um, But at the same time, it has to be done in community. Because there's, there's essentially three things that have to be present for, for the gospel to be preached here. And it's the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. We need the Word of God because it reminds us of what's really true. We need the Spirit of God because it gives us the power to really change. It's our fuel. But we need the people of God because we can't see ourselves. We can't see ourselves. We can see ourselves in God's word and we can see ourselves when other people come up and say, hey, here's the thing that you don't know about you that you need to know about you. And it takes a lot of trust for a community to live in that sort of way, but we need that from one another. It's God's grace that enables us to see our sin, to preach the gospel and to really live in light of it. So let me just end by, I wanna end with a question today for you. Where are you exaggerating or diminishing sin in your life? Where are you exaggerating or diminishing sin in your life? Where do you need to be reminded of the grace of Jesus? Because when it comes to gospel fluency, no one talks to you more than you. What are you preaching to yourself? Are you preaching a gospel of grace Are you really living because of Jesus? Or are you preaching another message? Let's pray together.